There are lots of remarkable gadgets in From Russia with Love and Goldfinger. But can you believe it? Ah, we're going to make that call right now. Join us as we take apart all these cool gadgets right now. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. And Vicky Hodges. From SpyMovieNavigator.com on our podcast show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies. Tell your friends about us. You know, I've been looking over all the stuff we're going to go over today, and it's cool. But there's nothing in there about coffee. No coffee references at all. <sighs> wait, wait, we're doing a thing on spy stuff. Lately, there's been coffee in all of them. Yeah, but spies love coffee. You know that. Bond likes his very black. Well, we know a great coffee you coffee lovers and spy movie fans can order. The name? Ha! <laughs> can it get any better than this? Spy Coffees. Oh, yeah. I'm drinking some of their double agent medium roast right now, and it's fabulous. And because you're hearing it here, when you order, you'll get 20% off your entire order. Ah, huh, yeah, that's pretty good. How? Oh, you ask. Head to spycoffees.com, then use our special code SPYNAV at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your whole order. SPYNAV, S-P-Y. N-A-V. Drink up. It's good. Hmm. All right. Okay, let's start by looking at the gadgets from In Russia With Love. As we do this, we'll render a verdict as to the plausibility of each gadget. Simply, can you believe it? The first gadget of sorts we see is in the pre-title sequence when it appears as though Bond has been strangled to death by a Garat-equipped watch. Both the Garat watch and the mask that the victim is wearing to make him look like Bonds are gadgets. Wait, Dan, what's a Garat? A Garat is a little wire, basically, that you strangle people with. So ah, it's, it's okay. kind of a nice little tool. <laughs> Whoa! Kind of wrap it around their neck and pull it. Very effective. So nice. we see a lot of masks, of course, used in Mission Impossible, the old TV show and the movies now. But the mask as a gadget goes back before from Russia with Love. Red Grant uses the Garot watch again aboard the Orient Express against the real Bond. Yes, and it's ironic that Bond should turn the tables and use the Garot to kill Grant within one of the best fight scenes within the franchise. It is also worth noting that the watch is seen briefly on Her Majesty's Secret Service when Bond is looking through his desk reminiscing about the past. That's true. And the Garat has been regularly used by the military since World War II. So this is a real device out there. So certainly a variant of it in a watch that you could pull out and strangle somebody with, that's easy to conceive in 1963. I would so I say- I believe it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I believe it. That's <laughs> not a problem. Good tool. Both the mask and the Garat are good gadgets. So Bond gets paged when picnicking with Sylvia Trench. He has a one-way beeper, so Bond must use his Bentley car phone to call M. The first telephone pager was patented in 1949 by Al Gross, but the first consumer-orientated pager was not approved by the CSDS until 1958. By 1994, 61 million pagers were in use. Although today they are not as widespread, pagers are still made. The delivery of messages is instant and can be to multiple people at the same time. So they are around, but Bond has one in 1963. Yeah, which is pretty cool. Of course, text messaging can be sent now to multiple people at the same time, and it's pretty instant as well. But can we believe this in 1963? 
We can believe it. I believe it. I think so, too. Well, what about that phone that Bond had in the car in that scene? I remember I had a car phone in the 1980s, but this was 1963. Could that have been real? Well, it turns out that in 1946, Illinois Bell Telephone Company started carrying calls on Motorola equipment. And I only mentioned the Motorola equipment because it was actually done about two miles from my house. So this is absolutely a believable thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Car phone then. And it was cool. In his Bentley, that was a cool thing to have. And yeah, I go. Thumbs up. I believe it. (laughs) There are two other things in this scene with Sylvia that are probably not gadgets, but worth pointing out. The first is there's the string that Bond ties the champagne to to chill it in the river. (laughs) So the string being a kind of gadget to be a chiller. I I don't know. And the second gadget, and I, I put this in air quotes, (laughs) <laughs> it has to do with Nikki Vanderzeel. Now, uh, Eunice Gason is the actress we see as Sylvia Trench, but Nikki dubs her voice. So is Eunice Nikki's gadget, or is it the other way around? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't see voice dubbing as a gadget, but okay, all right. <laughs> She's done a lot of voices, Nikki Vanderzeel, she has. Uh, for the Bond films. A lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so when Cleb walks across the training camp with Morzini to meet Red Grant, they walk by this training area where agents are fighting, shooting guns, and even using a flamethrower. We know guns were real and had been around a heck of a long time, but what about the flamethrower? It turns out, really, that the first use of throwing fire as a weapon, believe this or not, here you go, dates back to the Peloponnesian Wars, the 400s BC, (laughs) and the Byzantine Empire had something called Greek fire back in about 673 A.D. And modern flamethrowers were first used during the trench warfare conditions in World War I and increased usage in World War II. So, (laughs) flamethrowers okay? (laughs) Definitely believable. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. Now, the biggest gadget in this From Russia With Love movie is the Russian Lector. It's a decoding machine used to decompile coded and highly sensitive documents. And it was highly sought after, of course, by the British. Of course, the Lector device was not only a gadget, but an essential part to the plot. The main reason Bond was sent to Istanbul was to retrieve it for MI6. And of course, the Spectre organization wanted it so they could sell it back to the Russians. (laughs) Yeah, I like that part. It's like they're gonna steal it and sell it back to you. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Of course, such a machine is based in reality, like on the Enigma machine in World War II that the Allies cracked the German code with. Now, Dan, we talked about that machine when we talked about the Spyscape Museum because they have an Enigma machine at that museum in New York. Yeah, they do. It was one that was retrieved from a lake, I believe, and it was all rusted out and everything else. We have pictures of it in our podcast on that one on our YouTube channel. But yeah, pretty cool. But but wait, <laughs> coding machines in World War II, yeah, sure, okay. And this is 1963, Elector machine. Yeah, we can believe that right now, right? But how about this? A coding machine in the American Revolutionary War? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson invented the wheel cipher while he was George Washington's Secretary of State to encode diplomatic messages. It had 36 wheels on it that could be spun around to encode a message. And someone with the identical wheel cipher machine 
on the other end could decipher it. It appears that he never really built it, and he abandoned the idea in 1802. But the U.S. Army reinvented it as the M-94, which was used from 1922 up to the beginning of World War II. Another encryption device that was widely used was called a one-time pad, which the spy encrypting the message would have one sheet and the target would have the other. The random code was selected and used once. Once the message is sent, the originating pad is destroyed. The receiver decodes the message, then destroys their pad. So the code could never be broken, as new codes were used all the time. Pretty ingenious. So cipher machines have been important for a long time. So, so they're definitely a believable yeah, gadget for us here. Easy to go with this one. Yep. Yep. I think we deciphered the code on that one. <laughs> of course, Q's Atachi case. A smart piece of luggage is a gadget everyone remembers from this film. It contained an AR-7, a 22 caliber rifle with infrared scope that could be broken down to fit into the stock of the rifle, multiple rounds of ammo, a tear gas canister that can be activated to disable an enemy opening the case, 50 gold sovereigns, just in case, <laughs> and a pop-out throwing knife. In real life, there are briefcases developed for spies that will incinerate the secret and sensitive papers they hold if they're opened the wrong way. Yeah. This is my favourite gadget from the franchise. Bond refers to it as a nasty little Christmas present, but ultimately, this Q invention saves Bond's life. Interestingly enough, Desmond Llewellyn used to take the case with him on publicity tours. Wow. Did he ever have to we use the knife? <laughs> <laughs> We mentioned in, Doc, in the Dr. No piece before, M mentions a similar device in Dr. No when he tells Bond he will have all the papers sent to the airport in a destructor bag, as we mentioned earlier. Wow. And yesterday, we can purchase an electric shock briefcase, which yeah. will shock the assailant when he tries to open it and emit a loud siren. And it can be customized to release, are you ready? tear gas <laughs> no kidding yeah it's believable i that think makes so it's a very believable gadget hey you, yeah you want to really believe it check out spynuts.com you can buy one of these things i might have to get one of those <laughs> <laughs> okay tell me if you do so i don't accidentally <laughs> pop up tear gas yeah all right so there's another gadget that they use in from russia with love and it's the periscope underneath the offices of the russian consulate so when they go into the cistern area in Istanbul. And it's a gadget of sorts because it's not used like you would normally use it, which would be to spot ships on the surface from a submarine, but really to spy on foreign agents in their embassy. It's easy to believe it could be used for that. It's hard to believe, though, that the Russian embassy never picked up on the fact that it was there and used twice a day. Well, what I love about the fact this is the fact that Kerim Bay had the whole Russian consulate closed to install it and then claimed that it was the shaking of the foundations was the traffic build-up. <laughs> he was such a character, he always had a story to tell. Great character. Yes, he was. So, yeah, definitely believable. De yeah. Definitely a believable gadget. Yeah, and I love that whole scene, a whole the waterway in the cistern there, and, and Kerim Bay was a great, great character. Terrific. Mm -hmm. Now, what about Tanya's little compact case? Of course, it's not much of a gadget, but it was used for a dead drop and with the map of the Russian consulate in it where it shows where the lector is located. Okay, it's a low-tech device, but <laughs> spies used similar devices and still do 
to make dead drops of information that other spies would go retrieve. One such item was a hollowed out spike that the spy would use this to insert the information into the spike, nail it into the ground basically, put the screw top on it, and another spy knowing that it was gonna be in this area would go and retrieve it. This kind of stuff happens all the time. Yeah, and we saw another use of the dead drop in the movie Breach with Chris Cooper, where he was portraying Robert Hansen, who was an actual CIA double agent. And he used the dead drop all the time to get information to his Russian counterparts. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Tanya's compact case. Yeah. It's a simple gadget, but effective. There you go. Definitely believable. Yeah. The poison tick blade on the shoe first killed Kronstein when Morzany popped the blade in the shoe and kicks him. Killing him in 12 seconds. Not good enough for Blofeld, though. <laughs> and then later used by Rosa Klebb trying to kill Bond in the Venice hotel room. Poison-tipped items were used, and the U.S. pilot Francis Gary Powers, who was shot down over the Soviet Union in 1960, had items with him that were confiscated by the Soviets, including a flashlight, a pistol with a silencer, and a poison-tipped pin. Yeah. Yep. Even umbrellas which shot a poison pellet have been used to kill enemy agents. Right. In the 2002 film Die Another Day, the shoe can be seen in a scene which showcased many of the classic gadgets from the past. Yeah, that was in a scene where Bond says to Q, so this is where they keep the old relics. Then he smelled the shoe. (laughs) I mean, I I know, Vicky, you give Die Another Day a little more credit than I do, but it seems like that that really turned me off. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I thought the line was good because I think he was kind of ribbing Q as he was an old yeah, relic as well. But smelling, but, the shoe. But smelling the shoe is a little, a little much. <laughs> now, Vicky mentioned Gary Powers, and of course, the movie The Bridge of Spies is about the trade for Gary Powers with the main character Rudolph Abel. Yeah. So the so the poison tipped knife in the shoe. Definitely sounds like a believable yeah, gadget. Yeah, thumbs to me. up from me on that one. Yes, yeah. me too. I believe it. Then we have the camera disguising as a tape recorder. A Bond uses us when he gets the specs on the lector from Tatiana on board that ferry boat in Istanbul. Mm-hmm. It's easily believable that they would retrofit a camera like that. But actually, if we think about it, today's video recorder is a modern day version of that. Yeah. Where it's recording the audio and the video. Well, before digital recorders, yeah. Yeah, before the digital <laughs> recorders. So definitely... Yeah, we've got, we got to believe that. We've got to believe this is uh, a, a, re, a believable gadget. Yeah, easy to do. And uh, and it was a beautiful scene on the Bosphorus Straits there in Istanbul. That was pretty cool. That pretty was. Cool. Bond also had a bug detector that he used to scan his room at the Crystal Palace Hotel in Istanbul. So, Sure. You're going to look for bugs in your room. You're a spy, for crying out loud. But Bond has an electronic bug detector as well. So he was looking around, but he has this thing, electronic one. Nice, cool. Yeah, if I remember, he requests a room change, stating the bed is too small. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What a great Bond line. (laughs) I love all that kind of stuff that they throw in there. And you have to, it's like, oh, I wonder what that means. (laughs) Oh, never mind. Let's get back. (laughs) Ah. When the transistor bugs were developed in the 1960s, they became smaller and harder to find, the bugs themselves. So Bond's bug detecting device is very small and more than likely at the time, it probably would have been a larger piece of equipment to pick up the radio frequencies and so on from the electronic bugs in the room. 
we can't be certain. So the concept of it, yeah. Definitely believable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The size of it, maybe not. <laughs> now, can you call a two-way mirror like the one they had in Bond's honeymoon suite a gadget? I mean, maybe. I mean, they were filming Bond and Tatiana making love. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, we can. A Spectre plan to use a video against Bond by leaking it to the press. I think we can say that this was an early form of sex tape which Bond was going to be exploited for. Yeah, and hey, a mirror is a mirror. A two-way mirror is a gadget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right, so it's a believable gadget. I go, yeah. Okay, so possibly the most tenuous gadget in From Russia With Love is the trapdoor billboard, featured in a scene between Ali Karim Bay and Bond. If we remember, Karim Bay is waiting for Colin Q's attempt to escape. He knows that the trapdoor is hidden in an advertising billboard and he's waiting to shoot Krilenko dead. It's a great film noir scene and one of my favorites. What do we think about that one? Hey, I think a trapdoor is a gadget. Yeah, yeah, it's an escape gadget. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think it's good. Yeah, it's Krilenko's gadget to get out of the building. Now, there was something about that billboard, too, that was interesting on the side of the wall that he opens the trapdoor you mean the Call Me Buana billboard? Yeah. Yeah, that was, a, that was another movie by Rockley and Saltzman that was released at the same time. They put it in here for advertising, although it didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we talked about that in our podcast on From Russia With Love. So if you want to hear more about that, take a listen to that podcast. Yeah. All right, so that covers the gadgets in From Russia With Love. There were more of them there than I originally thought there would be. So let's go ahead and move on. Let's look at the movie that's credited with creating and finalizing the Bond formula, namely Goldfinger. Goldfinger, one of the best, not only Bond movies, one of the best movies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it starts with the scuba headgear that Bond sports in this pre-title sequence. And it's a gadget of sorts. When Bond is submerged in his scuba gear, his head just above the water has a seagull on it attached to his gear to make it look as though it's just swimming innocently on the water. <laughs> okay, that's that's believable. Don't know how useful this is for someone watching. I mean, someone could be watching them, seeing the little birds swimming, but of course, Bond steps out of the water two seconds later, so it's like, oh, yeah, shit, that bird's attached to the scuba diver. I don't know how useful it was, <laughs> but maybe it was to get him to that point. So I'm going to well, say, okay, that's okay. Yeah, and then they took that concept further with the crocodile boat thing or whatever that Roger Moore's Bond was in. Octopus, yeah. yeah we yeah, saw that yeah. actual device at the Bond in Motion Museum in London. Yeah, Very so cool. Like they go from a small seagull to say, let's take the whole body and put it in. Yeah. And you even see the, the manta ray in License to Kill. Yeah. The manta ray suit, so... Of course, the whole point of Bond doing this is to get ashore inconspicuously and to blow up a Latin American drug dealer's headquarters. Eventually, he unzips the dry suit, really, and he's got a crisp white dinner jacket and bow tie <laughs> and everything else. And if you're thinking like we're thinking, it's like, what's the chance of that really happening in real life? I mean, this is probably not believable, right? Well... Wait a minute, wait a minute. So in real life, there was a Dutch spy who used a very similar technique to infiltrate a German-occupied mansion in the Netherlands 
during World War II. <laughs> Underneath his specially designed wetsuit, he wore evening wear. And his evening wear would make him look like he fit in, he belonged. And he could slip past the German guards into this party. He was supposed to extract two comrades and escape. Now, they brought in a screenwriter to spiff up the Goldfinger script, this guy, Paul Dane. And turns out that Paul Dane knew about this World War II incident. And originally, this wasn't in the script. Coincidence? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, now we do talk about this in more detail in our podcast about the real world events, part one. Yeah, so check that. So if you want to hear, if you want to hear more about that, listen to part one of the real world podcast that we did. It was one of our early on ones. Goldfinger started the tradition of having an action pre-title sequence that did not link to the plot. It was an ingenious idea as it kept the audience interested. And I think that this fun gadget was used to inject a little humor into proceedings. And as Tom mentioned earlier, it was emulated by fake alligators and gorillas in later Bond films. Yeah, that was, that was fun. And I, I like the whole concept of the pre-title sequence, not connected directly with the rest of the movie, although he's in Miami Beach vacationing from this mission he just completed, which is the only thin connection. But... Yeah, very thin connection. <laughs> but it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Actually... Spielberg gave a nod to the Goldfinger scene with the white suit uh, by having Harrison Ford wear the white suit with the red rose in the Temple of Doom. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's nice. That's true. Bit of a nod. <laughs> All right. The next thing we want to talk about is the laser. Light amplification through stimulated emission of radiation, in case you ever wondered what laser stood for. I think this was one of the best gadgets in any <laughs> spy movie because it was really only invented... In 1960 and Ian's production team changed what was supposed to be a table saw because it was a table saw in the novel they made it a laser in Goldfinger in 1964 so this was a high-tech toy most people hadn't seen it they may have heard about it but it was really based on real technology possibly the most famous scene within the franchise and the most quoted I'd say while strapped to the table laser edging towards Bond certifying his impending doom Bond says, do you expect me to talk? And Goldfinger startly replies, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. <laughs> Just classic. It is Absolutely classic. Absolutely classic. One of the and best lines ever and one of the best scenes ever in one of the Bond yeah. films. And one, of the best, and one of the best gadgets ever. And, in my opinion, very believable. Yeah, Ian's always done a yeah, good absolutely. job at, at integrating current technologies or even marginal current technologies into the films, which is great taking real-world stuff and bringing them into the movies. Nice. All right. So let's talk about tracking technologies. <laughs> well, there were some tracking technologies in 1964, like NASA being able to track space flights and capsule locations and so on from the U.S. The concept of portable tracking devices was pretty new. A GPS-type tracking device was really 1978-ish and was not really widespread until the 1990s because of the lack of satellites, mostly. And this was mostly developed for the military. So in 1996, the U.S. president at the time, Bill Clinton, created a new policy indicating that this technology could be useful to the public. And so GPS technology began for public consumption in the U.S. But in 1964, Bond has a tracking device he could clandestinely place on Goldfinger's car to track him to his Switzerland 
headquarters location and a portable device that was hidden in his shoe that can be used to track him individually. In real life, during the Cold War, the Soviet KGB had a shoe device that fits into the heel of the shoe and was a transmitter with a microphone so they can listen in on private conversations of their target wherever they planted the device. <laughs> Pretty cool. So you're talking about the fact that during the Cold War, there was this kind of a, a listening device there, but then you're talking about the fact that the satellites weren't there. So how believable then do you think it is really that the the gadget that we're talking about here, the GPS tracker, or the they didn't call it GPS at the time because it didn't exist, but the tracking device that he had would would have been a believable device then? It's hard to say, really. I can't make a judgment on that for sure because it was really well done in the film. In the movie, when you see the tracking device in the car, in the DB5, it actually has the actual <laughs> geographic locations, like in Switzerland and so on, tracking Goldfinger's car. So they actually went to the extra step to do that. How real is it with few satellites then? I mean, the first satellite was launched in 1957 by the Soviet Union. Uh, it would be hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the Aston Martin DB5. Oh, that's a beaut. <laughs> Complete with bulletproof windscreen, tracking device display, oil click shooters, smoke screen defense, machine guns in front directionals, ejector seat, yeah. and rotating license plates tire slashing mechanisms that protracted from the rear wheels or axles. This became the car we associate with the on-screen Bond 007. And it's cool. And it's my favourite. And you can purchase an Aston Martin DB5 keychain, which is very cool, <laughs> from 007.com, the official James Bond site. I've Possible. got one. <laughs> so believable. I'm definitely a fan of the vehicle. It's great to see it make a return back in GoldenEye in 95 and then used in the Brosnan and Craig films since. And its newest appearance, of course, will be in the forthcoming film, No Time to Die, All Guns Are Blazing. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you say it's believable, and, I mean, the car is obviously a real car, but the modifications they make to them, I don't know how you would actually physically put all of that stuff into a car. <laughs> where do you store the oil for the oil slick? Where do you... Where do you store the water for when he shoots the water out? In Thunderball. In, in Thunderball. Yeah. Some of it belies plausibility. Some of it seems like, yeah, okay, you could probably do that. I just don't know where you physically would have all of that stuff stored if it was real working stuff. I think you would store it in your willing suspension of disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> so pseudo, pseudo believable. <laughs> Is it uh, more believable than the invisible car in Die Another Day? No. Ew, yeah, more believable <laughs> than that. That's the worst gadget ever. Yeah. But These gadgets were good to see in a movie. The thing that got me <laughs> the thing that got me about the DB5, and I, you know, I'll go along with all the gadgets. I think it's fine. But they have bulletproof glass, like as you mentioned, Vicky, and so on, right? But he's got the, the metal plate that rises up the back so that they couldn't shoot through the rear window. Why didn't they make the rear window bulletproof as well? <laughs> well, I believe they told him that the, it was bulletproof glass all around. And I, I'm wondering, is it something to do with the angle of the glass that it just wasn't as bulletproof, so they put the extra protection of the metal? I don't know. You think with an angle, sure. an angle, the bullets would, would bounce off 
Yeah, but is the, the back window on that car is not as slanted as the front window. Oh, it's so pretty maybe. slanted. No, it's pretty slanted, I think. Is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. I think it's pretty slanted. And so, anyway, there is no such thing as bulletproof glass. It's actually layers of plastic. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now let's move to one of the best set pieces of the many brilliant set pieces that we see in Bond movies. And I'm talking, of course, the meeting room at Goldfinger's Stud Farm, where he's got that spinning billiard table, where he's got it, it flips over, and there's the controls on the other side. There's this large map projected on the wall of Fort Knox, and there's that 3D model that rises up of Fort Knox. I mean, that whole scene was just so cool. There are automatic shutters on the windows, which we have today, and of course, the gas canisters, which poison all of the gangsters in the room. What a brilliant room. I love this room. It appears very masculine on the outset, but it's like a man cave. And as Goldfinger uncovers the numerous gadgets within it, we see that it's something far far more dangerous. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a terrific set. It's hard to beat in the films that come, although one might argue the volcano and you only live twice tops it maybe. Yes. I'm not sure, but insofar as it being a gadget by containing all of these other gadgets within it, I think it's, for me, it's believable. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I think it's great. And a great Ken Adam set. I, I'm thumbs up on this one. I like it. I love it. Yeah, definitely for me. Org Enterprises also has a pretty good perimeter protection. When Tilly Masterson trips a wire, the section she is in is displayed on screens that Goldfinger's henchmen are monitoring. Pretty high tech for the times. Today, we have invisible fences that keep our dogs in our yards and stuff. So that's pretty good technology at the time, but I I go along with that one. Easy. Yeah, to me, it was totally believable because it was wired. It wasn't like it was, yeah. it was, you know, through the air. It was, there's, there were wires and she hit a wire and that wire sensor went off. Yeah, it so, required so- you to trip the wire. If you miss the wire, step over the wire, do anything else but hit the wire then not a pretty good perimeter protection device. <laughs> but there you and go. of course, she trips the wire. Yeah. The concept of a dirty nuclear device stroke bomb was also pretty new to the average person. And in the movie Goldfinger, Goldfinger plans to radiate the gold in Fort Knox. So it would be useless for the next 58 years to be exact. <laughs> in the book, he was going to remove it all from Fort Knox. So again, Eon Productions team were clever in using this in the film. It's a great touch that the expert bomb diffuser disables the bomb with 007 seconds left. I like that sort of thing. Yeah, but now, you know me, I've got to do some research. (laughs) Right, so they say that if they detonate this bomb, the gold's going to be radiated for 58 years. Now, I've listened and found some differing differing approaches to the reality of that, and none of it's good. (laughs) But... On the website, mi6-hq.com, they say the radioactive form of gold is very unstable and it would turn to liquid mercury within days. So instead of making the gold reserve untouchable, he would completely destroy it. Now, if that actually isn't reality, because again, that's just the one website I, I saw that on, the Foundation for Economic Education, Lawrence White tells us that Goldfinger failed to consider the stock and flow dynamics within the gold system. His plan was designed to increase the price of the supply of gold. However, mine owners, investors, and owners of jewelry would also face that same price increase. 
And so at a higher price of gold, harder to reach mines suddenly become worth the expense. Grandma's necklace doesn't feel so sentimental anymore. So it's possible that the price increase would not be to Goldfinger's benefit as much. Now, if we then look at madsci.org, gold only has one stable isotope, and it has a half-life of 186 days. And it's impossible to produce this isotype by neutron irradiation. So any radioactive gold would lose its induced radioactivity within a month or so. So not to throw cold water on Goldfinger's plans here, the concept of having a dirty radiation bomb makes sense, but the fact that it would make the gold unusable for 58 years, I don't think is very believable. Yikes. I don't know if anyone understood what Tom just said. Write us. <laughs> it, it wouldn't have worked the way Goldfinger thought. Let's just put it that way. Okay. I could understand that part. <laughs> All right. So, Dan, why don't you tell us about the gadget that Oddjob has? All right, Oddjob's had, of course. I mean, this is a gadget everyone knows. He killed Tilly Masterson with it in the film. He severed a statue's head with it. And eventually, this kills him as he gets electrocuted at Fort Knox when it gets lodged between the two metal bars and Bond slides on the floor with the electrical wires and zoom! Oddjob gets killed, electrocuted, dead, bam, out. I think actually Harold Sakata got injured when they were filming that scene. I believe he burned his hands when he did that. Yeah, something happened. Well, that's a pretty cool little gadget. So, so Oddjob's main weapon, his steel-rimmed hat, is also his doom. But it's a gadget every Bond fan knows. Yeah, it's a great gadget that fits in with Goldfinger's megalomaniac plot so well. Yeah, it's perfect for that. And one of his screen-used hats sold at a Christie's auction in 1998 for about 120,000 U.S. dollars. <laughs> there are reports that that was the only hat used as well, but we're not certain about that. The original hatter who made the hats was James Locke and Company on St. James Street in London, a firm that was started in 1676. This was a classic gadget and with universal awareness. And one that I believe is totally believable. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. We got Frisbees you can throw accurately. So you could, yeah, that's good. I like it. This is the first film to introduce Q's laboratory in which we see an array of gadgets not used in Bond missions. Over time, these scenes and gadgets get wackier, particularly through the Moore era. In this film, we see a tear gas parking meter, <laughs> a thermo flask grenade, and a bulletproof vest. Now, we know that bulletproof vests have a purpose today. In the 1500s, Italian royalty had bulletproof vests made out of layers of metal. This was then softened in the 1800s by the Japanese using silk as the inner layers, but this proved too expensive. Mm. And we know, of course, that during World War II, flak jackets were used. Though bulky and ineffective from most gunfire, they provided some security for the soldiers mentally. Of course, current bulletproof vests weigh 5.5 pounds and can protect the wearer against most handgun fire. So yes, we know that this one is believable. Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. So that wraps up our look at the gadgets of the James Bond movies from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. We saw that most of the gadgets have plausibility. However, a few were just not so believable. 
The movie magic brought to us by the James Bond team. This has been Vicky Hodges. And Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Please tell your friends about our show. And most importantly, subscribe to our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies through your favorite podcast app. We appreciate it. Tell us what country you're listening from via Twitter at SpyNavigator. Navigator.